Continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and today we are coming to the topic of temptation. Before we do that, I was tempt- I'm tempted to not do this, but I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, and I pray now as we enter into a time of looking at your word, that your spirit would illuminate it, that it would help us to see what it needs to do in our lives, God. Um, we thank you uh, thank you for your goodness. May your wor- my words be your words, Father, and we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be talking about temptation now. We know that temptations come in all different forms and all different degrees. There are some that are really small with minimal consequences, like really my, my weekly temptation to go to McDonald's and get, my, uh, to get that Rolo McFlurry. Oh, man. Snack size, though. Snack size, Okay. So minimal consequences, but that's definitely one, that's definitely one of mine the last, in the last few months. But then there's other bigger temptations that definitely have more dire consequences like the temptation to misuse money in a way that puts us in financial difficulty or the temptation to have inappropriate relationships maybe with the opposite sex or to maybe look at things that really will compromise our integrity and our walk with the Lord and all sorts of things. So. So the way, the really, the thing is, the way that we handle our temptations that come our way, it is vital. How we handle them is vital in every way, and really in determining our joy and our fulfillment in, the, in this life. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus dealt with three specific temptations and what we can learn from him and how he dealt with those temptations, with each one of them. So if you're, here, if you're here last week, or if you listened online, or you went to YouTube, or you watched ABC News, you saw me, I'm kidding, you saw uh, that we talked about um, where the passage ended where Jesus got baptized, okay? He got baptized, and being baptized, immediately coming out of the water, remember, he came out of the water, the heavens opened up, and he heard his father say, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And what we saw with that last week is that Jesus' identity, it was shaped by his relationship for his father. And so too, our relationship, our, our identity is to be formed by our relationship with Jesus as his followers. You see, as Jesus identified himself with our need for righteousness by being baptized, this week we're gonna see how Jesus identifies with us now and how, at, how his identification with us practically plays out as we see how he dealt with overcoming these temptations, the temptation to sin, the temptation to be disobedient to God, things that we all face. And we're going to see that he does this, really, kind of give it all away here, is by trusting in God's character. He does it by trusting in God's character, by the fact that God is trustworthy and that God is is faithful. So in this week's passage, what we're going to do is we're going to see that Jesus finding his soul identity in his relationship with God is going to be tested. This is what this is all about, okay? Which is really great news for us. It's fantastic news for us because this means that we have a Savior that can relate to our struggles to find our identity in something else. That's what this is all about. The devil's trying to get Jesus to find it in something else, and that's exactly what he does to us on a regular basis, okay? And he can relate to us. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let's take a look at that. Let's look and see how Jesus dealt with the questions, with the temptation to question his identity. Let's first look, what we're going to do is we're going to look first at the first uh, one of these. We're going to kind of give a, the context for these first. In the first verses, a couple of verses of chapter 4 in Matthew, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at these first two verses. It kind of sets the context for these um, uh, temptations that he's going to face. He says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, now being led by the Spirit, this, what this does is this tells us that this whole experience takes place under the guidance of the Spirit. It wasn't something that just happened. Oh my gosh, what, what was going on here? This, was, this happened under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which means therefore it was, it was a part of God's purposes. It was God's purpose to lead Jesus into the wilderness to allow him to be tested and to go fast because he went there to fast and prepare for this incredible ministry that he was going to start. So this was all under God knew what was going on. And this really is a good lesson for us. This is important for us because, well, as we saw last week, when a person becomes a true follower of Christ, what happens is the Holy Spirit indwells them. And remember we said he begins to work like this refining fire. Remember we talked about how the Holy Spirit purifies and removes all that has kept a person. When a person first becomes a Christian, he purifies and removes all those things that had kept that person in the dark, that kept that person in chains. And now he's working continually to refine our hearts and refine our minds as we submit to him with repentance. So the one way this happens, though, is through trials and through temptations, through this testing that we face when we are tempted. You know, as followers of Jesus, we, fought, we face suffering and trials and temptations, not because God doesn't love us. Actually, it's completely the opposite. It's totally the opposite. He allows these things to happen in our lives in order to prove and to refine our character. Really, what he does, he allows these things to happen to better prepare us to be able to handle temptations because they're not going to stop. They're going to keep coming. You see, temptation in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's not the temptation that's bad. What temptation is, is really trying to get something good in a bad way. Temptation is trying to get something good in a way that is not beneficial at all. It's wanting to prove, our, for our, it's wanting to provide for our needs. It's wanting to have our desires met, yet going about it in a way that dishonors the Lord and dishonors the mission that he has us on. It's wanting to trust the Lord with our lives, but in doing so, we expect him to act in certain ways. It's wanting a fulfilling life, yet really wanting it on our terms. And these are precisely the temptations that Jesus will face in his time in the wilderness. This is exactly what he's going to go through. Theologian and mystic Thomas, Thomas Merton wrote this. He says, The greatest temptations are not those that solicit our consent to obvious sin, but those that offer us great evils masking as the greatest goods. That's a great definition of temptation. So let's look at Let's dive in. Let's look at the first temptation that Jesus faced. He faces in verses three and four. Let's read it. He says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, 
command these, sto these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right, so in this first temptation, we're introduced to another principal player in this whole thing, and it's called, this whole scenario, he's called the tempter, okay? The tempter, this term tempter, really, it's simply a description of what the devil's role is in all of this plot, okay? This is to describe him here. He's described in many ways throughout the Bible, but this specifically is how he's described here. He's going to use a lot of his other ways that we can describe him as a liar and a thief and all these other things and all deception, all that in other ways. He will see that happen. So what the devil is intentionally actually saying here in this, in this temptation, he's saying, come on, Jesus, really. There's absolutely no reason that you should be hungry right now. There's no reason for it. You're the son of God for crying out loud. This is beneath you. This is beneath someone of your exalted state. You shouldn't be hungry right now. Besides, and you can remedy this. That is absolutely no problem for you. Go ahead and take care of yourself because you, you, don't, you don't deserve this. This is what you shouldn't be going through. You see, what the devil's attempting to do here is destroy the son's confidence in his father's will and his power to sustain him. Okay? He was asking Jesus to distrust his father and to take matters into his own hands by providing for himself. He's saying, come on, go ahead and do it. You can do it. And could Jesus have done it? Of course. But he's asking him to deny what God is asking him to go through. The principle the devil is implying here is that God cannot be depended upon to provide, so I must provide for myself. Okay, is that on the next slide there, Scott, I think? The principle here is God cannot be depended upon to provide, so I must provide for myself. And this is exactly how he constantly th does things to us. He tries to get us to get doubt that God will provide for our every need and that we need to take matters into our own hands. What he's doing here in this temptation is he's tempting Jesus to really rethink the fundamental truths about God's character. Is he really trustworthy? Is he really faithful? And remember, he's doing this after Jesus hadn't eaten or drank anything for 40 days. So he's catching him at his most vulnerable moment. And that's what he often does with us. Now, Jesus responds this way. He says, just by, he responds to this suggestion by quoting scripture. And we'll see that he does that in all of these. In all of these. Here he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 30. And in doing so, what Jesus is doing is he's reaching back into Israel's history. Remember, I've said this every week now too. This book, Matthew was writing this book to who? He was writing this letter to a primarily Jewish audience. So when he's retelling this story that obviously Jesus had, Jesus had to pass this on to them, He's making sure he puts this part in there so his readers hear, oh, he's grabbing something from the Old Testament that we're very familiar with. Okay, I get it. He's reaching back and reminding them how God was tenderly caring for them while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So he's bringing it back to them. Okay? This is really the entire verse. I have it here for you. The entire verse reads, actually, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, 
that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, God let Israel go hungry in order to teach them that there's more important things than having their needs being met. What's more important is trusting God that he will meet their needs. In his time and in his way, he will take care of you. And this is the truth that Jesus is choosing to believe. He's choosing to believe, I know he will take care of me. But in his time and in the way he wants to do it, not in a way that seems like, oh, yeah, makes sense, duh, I'm the son of God, bread, yay, you know, I do Hawaiian, that Hawaiian bread. But, you know, something like that, he's saying, go do that, but no, he's saying, I'm not going to do that. Bread isn't the answer here. That's not the answer. Providing for himself is not the answer. The answer is found in trusting his father who he just told him, remember? Just probably that same day had just told him that he was well pleased with him. He trusting that he will meet his every need according to his riches and glory. You see this whole term, every word? Every word, it comes from the mouth of God. What this is, is his revelation of himself to us. That's what God's word is. Obviously, you can't fill my stomach with that. What he's saying here, it's his revelation, which is more important. It's what we're to feed on. It's better than bread. It's better than, you know, bread here really represents all the necessities of life. Food, water, shelter, all that stuff. But God's word, feeding on it, he's saying, that's better. See what he's doing? What he's doing with priorities here? Because he says, I will take care of you. Don't worry. Jesus knew that because he was faithful and trustworthy, God would take care of him, that God would provide for him in his time. And he wasn't willing to take matters into his own hands, even if it seemed so convenient and so easy to do so. Really, in his response to the devil, Jesus is saying that he understands that this experience he's going through, this 40 days, being hungry, being tired, he's saying, I understand that this is God's will for me right now. This is God's will for me at this time. So there's no need for me to use my power. I don't have to do it. I don't have to go out of God's will. I don't have to go out of his design for me to take care of myself because I know he will take care of me. Let me ask you, in what ways are you tempted to not fully trust that God will provide and to take matters into your own hands. I think I even have that question for you, Scott, to put up there that I want you to really think about that. What ways are you tempted to not fully trust that God will provide and tempted to take matters into your own, own hands? It can be allowing fear fear to play too significant in, the role, in a role of a decision. You ever had that happen before? You want to make a decision, but all the what, what if, 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 all starts coming, and we give that too much basis. 
So and so, I'm going to do what I need to do. We take things into our own hands. Or it can be the temptation to embrace worry and anxiety over a situation instead of believing that God is trustworthy and faithful. This happens to me every single week as I prepare to get up in front of you guys. Half of my week, my work week is getting ready for this. And I got to tell you, it comes down to the wire every single week. I take this very seriously. This is no small thing for me to to speak God's word and to be faithful to what the passage says, really says, and what it says for us. But I got to tell you, it's so, the temptation comes to me about Thursday afternoon. Oh, what, what, what if I don't? Like this week was a classic example. I, had a conf- I went to a conference for a whole day. My son and his wife were out of town, so we've got uh, our grandson since Friday till tomorrow. So, of course, where does my mind go right away? At the beginning of the week, I'm like, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm, I'm trusting you. <laughs> Monday. <laughs> okay? Thursday comes around the day after I get back from a conference, and I'm going, Oh my gosh, because I know where I need to be by certain times of the week. I'm like, how's this going to happen? So what's my, the temptation to do? Worry. Be anxious. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I can't make this go any faster, but I can sure worry about it. I can be freaked out. I can lose sleep. I can, I can do that. I'm awesome at that. Professional. Okay? So it's a temptation to do that. And that's what this concept here, that's what the temptation that Jesus is having here. Because the truth is that we are all tempted to move away from reliance on God to reliance on what we believe we can do, what we can do that we need to do to handle our situation and control things. Now, this is especially hard for those of you that are what they call control freaks, maybe. That you like to, oh, ouch, sorry, 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 too close. <laughs> um, But true, it's it's so easy. If your natural tendency is to want to control, this temptation is where, this is yours. This is where he's going to go after you, right here. Because he knows that's your bent, and he he hates you. And he's going to do whatever he can to destroy your intimacy with the Lord. Yet Jesus teaches us here that no matter what, no matter what, God can be trusted to provide because he is trustworthy. He is faithful. That is his character. Next one. Verses 5 through 7, we see the second temptation that Jesus faces. Let's read that. Then the devil took him to the and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw your down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, here we have G- the devil. He takes Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, whether this is a, a literal transportation or a visionary situation, that's not, that's really not important. What he's essentially saying here to Jesus, okay, okay, you're so confident that God will take care of you? Let's ramp this up a bit, okay? And to strengthen his argument, he goes to Scripture, you got to know when the enemy goes to Scripture, something's up, okay? So he goes, to, he goes to Scripture, and he uses a passage from Psalm 91, which really, initially, it was addressing people that found their safety in God, that he was their refuge, and he was their fortress. And really, if God would protect them, 
Surely he would protect his son. Come on. Of course he'll do that. Yet this passage from Psalm is actually speaking metaphorically of an overall protective care that God has for people that are obedient to him and they trust him. See what the enemy's doing? He's taking scripture and twisting it. What the devil's doing, he's twisting the meaning in this psalm to mean basically, do whatever you want. However you, just go for it. he's He's gonna, he'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. You can just jump. You should be able to accept God, to God to keep you from hurting yourself if you're willing to just, just do whatever you want and jump off this cliff here. If he truly cares about you, go for it. He'll do it. He's testing him. And what this is, this is the temptation to put expectations on God as to how we should act. Okay, this is the second thing. The second thing is the temptation to put expectations on the way, on how God should act. So in other words, it's, in this case, it would be to act as if God was there to actually serve the son instead of the other way around. That's what he's getting him to do. Basically, listen, if God really cares about you, of course he'll keep you from being hurt and jump if you jump. Of course he will. Basically, if God is actually who he says he is, he will do this. If he really is, if he, says he's, if he says he's so faithful and he's so good, heck, just jump and he'll take care of you. See what he's doing there? Putting God in a box, saying you should hand, this is how he should act. You should expect this from basically what God, he's saying. If God actually says who he is, he is who he says he is. He should act as you expect him to act. Sound familiar? Do we ever do that? I know I do. Jesus responds, though, in his response to the devil, Jesus, again, quotes from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6, which, let me give you what it really says in chapter 6, verse 16, says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Messiah. Okay, he doesn't say that to the devil because... What he's doing, what he's doing, he's hearkening back once again. The people will understand, the Jewish people are saying, oh, he got this from Deuteronomy. And I know there's more to the story than what he's actually telling us. Because what was happening back in Deuteronomy, this is Moses describing a situation that happened back in, back in Exodus 17, where right after God, remember, he provided all the manna and the quail for the people because they were all hungry and everything like that. And then just shortly after that, they're thirsty. And they start quarreling with Moses. Hey, you brought us out here to die. There's nothing to drink. We're, we're, we're dying of thirst. We need some water. We need some water. And later, Moses names that place Massah because that means actually testing. Because what the people were doing in Exodus 7, 17, 7, it even tells us that the Israelites, they were beginning to test God, to put expectations onto him as to how he should act. If he really cares... This is what it's going to do. Let's look at what it says. Verse 7 says this. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here or not? I mean, that's pretty brazen. That's pretty bold to say that. Is he here or not? Basically, they're saying, unless God, you give us water now, you are obviously not who you claim to be. Unless we get that water, <laughs> this is not the joke what you've been saying. And you're definitely not worthy for us to worship. 
It's this mindset of unless God acts in our way and in our time, he's obviously not trustworthy and faithful and worthy of our alliance. Another question. What ways, in what ways have you been tempted to put expectation on God as to how he should act? In what ways? Maybe you're tempted to think that if God was truly trustworthy, he could either care for you and keep you from this illness or keep you from tragedy. If he really cared, he would do that. How often do we hear that question asked by people in the Christian world, especially in the non-Christian world, saying, if God was so loving and kind, if he was so good, why would he allow that to happen? That's the enemy working big time. Or maybe you've been tempted to think that if God were truly trustworthy and faithful, he would cause your partner to love you the way that you would like to be loved. Or that he would cause your children to love Jesus like you wish they would. Or he's going to help you if, he would, if God was truly faithful, if he was truly loving, he would help us get out of this financial hole that we're in. See what happens? See that temptation? God, if you are so good and you're so faithful, you should do this. Very American Christianity in a lot, in a lot of ways. Very because that's temptation is so because the American dream should happen our way. So what Jesus is saying here in his response to the devil, though, is that God can be fully trusted, and there's absolutely no reason to put him to the test. There's no reason whatsoever to put him to the test. He can be trusted. See what Jesus is doing? He's reminding himself of God's character. He's reminding himself, telling himself right off the bat, what, this is a great lesson for us. When we're tempted, we remind ourselves of God's truth, the character of God. He is trustworthy. Trustworthy. He is faithful. We tell us these things. He's long-suffering. we got to keep telling ourselves because even though we're Christians, we think, I should know this stuff. doesn't matter. we got to tell ourselves over and over and over. All right, third temptation. Let's look at that. Verses 8 through 11 says this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So in this third temptation, the devil shows Jesus, once again, we don't know if he likely, it's probably most likely a vision, all the, kingdom of, all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, okay? What the devil actually is doing here, he's offering Jesus something good, okay? Something right, but in the wrong way. By the wrong means. You see, God had already declared that Jesus was the king of kings and the ruler over all creation. But instead of Jesus being the king of kings and ruling as God's son, what the devil is trying to do here is get him to change his allegiance and rule by way of prostrating himself and worshiping the devil. Okay? What the devil's tempting him here is, is with glory without suffering. Okay? To have it all right now. Doesn't that sound like half the commercials we hear on TV and on the radio? To have it all right now. No suffering. No rejection. No beatings. 
no cross, no waiting. Let's just do this right now. Commentator something Tasker, I can't even all his RVG Tasker writes this. He says this, to escape the way of the cross by being disobedient to the vocation of the suffering servant, despised and rejected by men, upon whom was to be laid the iniquities of us all, was Jesus' greatest and most persistent temptation. Jesus was in effect tempted to subscribe to the diabolical doctrine that the end justifies the means, that so long as he is, is obtained universal sovereignty in the end, it matters not how that sovereignty was reached. See what the enemy's doing here? This, temp this temptation here tells us that it's our human nature to want things on our terms. That's who we are. We want to call the shots in our life. We're okay sometimes with the end, the, the end justifying the means. We're okay with taking shortcuts to have it all, to have as much as we can have with the least amount of resistance or struggle. Or, and our third one here, to be the ruler of our own life. This is the temptation of the enemy, to be the ruler. And we hear this message in our world all the time. Go for it. It's all about you. It's all about you taking care of yourself. You deserve a break today. You know, everything. We hear this. You are to be in charge. It's okay. And this is one of the strongest pulls of our flesh that can really be traced back all the way back to the original sin of Adam and Eve, where they were tempted by the devil to disobey God in exchange for ruling their own lives. They wanted to call the shots. Remember, they wanted the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I want to know that. What's wrong with that? I want to call the shots a little bit. And we saw the results of that. We're living the results of that. If you've never ever written, written, written any... <sighs> not written. If you've ever read anything, wow. If you've ever read anything by Neil Anderson, Neil Anderson's an author that writes a lot of things about spiritual warfare, that's kind of his thing. Well, I found this quote from him. He says this, whenever you think you don't need God's help or direction, that you can handle your life without consulting him and you don't have to bow your knee to anyone, beware. You may think you are serving yourself, but whenever you stop worshiping and serving God, you are in reality serving and worshiping Satan. And that is what he wants more than anything else. That sounds a bit strong, doesn't it? But it's true. And he does it in subtle ways like, not worship me, worship Satan. No, he doesn't do that. He does it in ways, I'm just trying to take care of myself. That's all. It's not that bad. I just want to be in charge. I know what's best here. I, I, I'm skilled. I have a degree, you know. I know what to do here. I had that argument with someone the other day. Thought they knew what they were talking about because they had an degree. It wasn't an argument. It was a heated discussion about a degree they had. So they know it. But so once again, Jesus answers the devil from Scripture. Okay, again from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy six thirteen. And what it originally says is this: It says, "Is the Lord God? It is the Lord God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name." You shall swear. So notice what Jesus does here. He substitutes the word fear in Deuteronomy for worship. 
Okay, he puts worship in there because to fear God is to have this reverence or this awe of him. It's to worship him. You see, this verse in Deuteronomy, what's happening here is Moses is instructing the Israelites. He's saying he knows they're soon, they're going into the promised land, okay? And he's instructing them that they need to be aware of where their affections are gonna lie, okay? Be ready. Do you really know who you love and who you serve? Because he knew that the moment they got into the promised land, they were gonna be confronted with the temptations of all the other gods that all the people worshiped there. So he's trying to prepare them for this. Moses tells them that their worship or their allegiance needs to be for God alone because he knew, along with the the biblical writers long after him, that worship for God ruins our appetite for counterfeit gods. You see that again. Worship for God alone ruins our appetite for counterfeit gods. God's. When we give our affection to God alone, we pull away, we pull our affections away from other things that clamor for our allegiance. I mean, think of a wedding ceremony, okay? When the groom says, I do to the bride, in a sense, what he's saying is, I don't to billions of other women, okay? And and vice versa, the same is true for the bride. And that's how it is, in a sense, with worship. Worship is both an affirmation of who truly matters. God, it's all about you. And it's also a confrontation of the lies that attempt to steal our affection and to steal our allegiance. Do you see how that works? Head nods, yes. You see how that works? When we're just going in that direction, it's gonna keep us able to, Put the blinders on a little bit. Jesus' response to the devil shows us that he believes that worshiping God alone, only God, his heavenly father, and allowing him to have full reign in his life, this is of the utmost value. There could be nothing more important than this, to worship him and let him completely rule in my life. That's how he overcomes this temptation. Another question for you. In what ways have you been tempted to be the ruler of your life in order to have life go the way you want it to go? In what ways? To want things on your terms, to want to take shortcuts, to call the shots in your life. This is an important question to ask, to mull over, because I think a lot of times you don't, I don't do that. But if we really spend the time, which those of you in the men's Bible study and the class over here are going to do next week with these questions, I think we, we're honest with ourselves because the enemy is going to do everything he can to get us to, right, like, yeah, that's not you. Don't worry about it. You're not doing that. You're sold out. You're in. Don't worry about it. You're doing a great job. When we've got these closets full of other idols, this closet's full of other things that we kind of go in and we secretly pet them and stroke them and then we come out and say, I'm all you, God. I'm worshiping you, raising my hands. And then we got something back over here that we're letting control us that, that you know what, that's, that's important. I can't let that go. And then we come back out. I'm all in. Let's go serve. That's the temptation. The temptation is that it's okay to do that. And the enemy will do that in ways that we don't even see. It's never going to be obvious. It's rarely ever going to be obvious. 
It's going to be something we don't even, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I am making that. I'm worshiping that. I'm worshiping whatever it might be. I'm worshiping my job, these relationships, home ownership, whatever. It becomes so easy to do that. And that's where the enemy is going to tempt us big time. Maybe you're faced with an opportunity to finally achieve what you've always desired or acquiring something that you've always wanted. And really, all it will take is just one small little compromise. That's what he's saying here, just one little compromise. Or to be tempted to fall in the trap that the ends justify the means. It all looked out, it worked out great. It worked out good for everybody. God got the glory. Did he really? Because if I just figure out a way to do an end around, it'll be okay. Because God surely wants this to work out. He wants me to be happy. That's the trap. That is the temptation. Now, in verse 11, we see here that, um, see that Jesus, though victorious, as you could imagine, is completely worn out from this ordeal. Okay? And angels come and minister to him, or they attend to him. I, don't, I can't imagine what that looked like. Must have been a great picture, though. Could you imagine this worn-out Jesus? It's not going to be like the ones you see him in a painting, like all, you know, Mel Gibson looking and all that, you know, looking. That's not going to be. He's frazzled. He's fried. And God comes. Remember the God of all comfort? Comes. And they attend to him. Angels, angels attend to him. So there's many lessons that we can take away from this passage concerning how Jesus dealt with temptations in the wilderness. Yet really, I believe that one of the most important ones is this. And I even made a slide for it because I think it's that important. We withstand temptation by wholeheartedly trusting in God's character. We withstand temptation by wholeheartedly trusting in God's character, in who he is. Not our circumstances, not how bad it's going, not how good it's going, not how it looks like, oh, what might happen here? We trust in his character and his character alone. We keep our eyes and minds on the truth that God can always be depended on, always to provide for us. That he can be fully trusted and there's absolutely no reason to put him to the test. And that God is the only one worthy of our worship and of our allegiance because only he is completely trustworthy and completely faithful. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example that is so clear that we have of your son, the testing that you allowed him to go through, through the testing that you allowed Israelites to go through, the testing you allow us to go through. Um, we know that, God, it's for our good. We don't like it. But, God, we know that you desire us to be able to fight off and ward off temptation. We know that you desire us to be more than conquerors in our faith, and we are. I know there's some in this room that feel pretty beat down by the temptations that they have given into the flesh, which is so easy to do, God. We've all been there, all of us. So God, I pray that once again, your character 
will be the thing that we lean on. Your character that says that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that means that you are faithful to love us. We can trust that you are, we are forgiven. We can trust that no matter what, we're the apple of your eye because of Jesus, not because of our actions. But God, we pray that as we face temptation, as soon as we walk out this door, that God, that we will trust in your character and your faithfulness and your trustworthiness to allow us and to push us towards loving and worshiping you. In your son's name.